Hello everybody, this is episode two of our life group study on the book of Romans and today we find ourselves in Romans chapter 9. We're going to be continuing with this chapter and it's worth noting that Romans chapter 9 contains some of the most difficult verses to understand in the entire Bible. Many Bible scholars and theologians have acknowledged this. So in light of that, I would like you to keep two things in mind. The first thing is that we need to approach this with humility. Let's remember that God is not necessarily the way we think He is. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. So we need Him to reveal Himself to us so that we end up worshipping a God that is not of our own design, but rather is the way that He reveals Himself to be. So we need to do that with humility. And of course, He does that through His Word, and He's going to be doing it through Romans chapter 9 today. The second thing that I'd like you to keep in mind is that because this is difficult, because you may be hearing things that you haven't heard before or that you find difficult to process, just be kind to yourself, extend yourself grace, um, extend grace to your life group leader, extend grace to Trevor and myself as we teach you these things, and, and most importantly, extend grace to God. Don't jump to conclusions. Don't think, oh my word. Um, God is no longer good because of this thing that I've just learned about him, or maybe I'm not saved because of this thing that I've just learned. Just take a deep breath and take some time to process it with your group and also with God as well. So keep those two things in mind. The next thing I'd like to do is just to recap very briefly what we learned in episode one. And in episode one, we learned that most of Israel is going to be cut off from Christ. This would seem to imply that God's promises had failed. How could God uh, not save all of Israel when he had chosen all of Israel? And Paul explains that God's promises have not failed because the promise was only to those who were elected, those who were especially chosen from within Israel by God. And so from this, we learned that only those whom God chooses will actually be saved. This is also known as the doctrine or the truth of election. And this truth was causing Paul great anguish. And it, pause, it causes us great anguish as well. It just raises so many different questions. And so in today's text, Paul poses exactly one of those questions. Then he answers the question and he gives a logical explanation to justify his answer. So there's a question, there's an answer, and there's a logical explanation or argument to justify the answer. Let's have a look at the question. Paul asks this question. He asks, is God unjust? We see that in verse 14. Why is Paul asking that question? Well, let's go back and have a look at what he's just written, beginning in verse 10. And not only so, but also when Rebecca had conceived children by one man, these children had the same father and the same mother, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, she was told the older will serve the younger 
as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And remember that that is an idiomatic Hebrew expression. It doesn't mean that God literally loved the one or hated the other. It just means that his choice might seem, uh, in comparison from the one to the other, that he hated the one he hadn't chosen. So Rebecca's children were twins. They were conceived by the same father. And yet before they were born, before they had done anything, good or bad, God chose Jacob. And so we ask the question, is that fair? Was God fair in doing that? Paul writes, what shall we say? Is God unjust? And the answer is a resounding no, not at all. God is not unjust. But what argument does Paul use to defend his answer? How does he justify God considering what seems to be an unfairness on God's part? And that's what today's teaching is about. We're going to have a look at the argument. And the argument is very structured. Today we're going to look at the first part of the argument. Verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? The question, the answer, by no means a resounding no, flying over this whole passage. Then he starts in verse 15 and he says, for. In other words, he's about to explain something. So that's the first part of the structure. Verse 15 is an explanation or a because clause. And then he moves on in verse 16 and he says, so then, which means that he's going to make an implication. He's going to come to a conclusion. So that's the structure, <coughs> I beg your pardon, of the argument that we're going to be looking at today. First of all, there is an explanation, a because, then there is an inference. Right, what is the explanation? God was being completely just when he chose Jacob because many years afterwards he said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. This is the reason why God is entirely just in choosing Jacob over Esau. Verse 16, then he draws an inference. He, he comes to a conclusion on the basis of verse 15. He says, it depends. So then, therefore, it depends. Now, what is the it that he's referring to? Well, we know from the context that the it that he's referring to is God's purpose in election, God's decision to decide who will be saved and who will not be saved, um, and who will not be saved. Therefore, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Since God alone chooses who to have mercy on, election or salvation does not depend on what we want and it doesn't depend on what we do. So then, we followed the argument. It's crystal clear, but is it? Does this really justify God in choosing Jacob over Esau? It's strange. We, we followed this argument very carefully and on the surface it seems crystal clear and yet we're still none the wiser. Let me explain why. Suppose I make this statement. 
I am scared because Joe is not here. The reason why I'm scared is that Joe is not here. That's perfectly clear. But for you to have a full, full picture, you're going to have to have more facts. Where are we going to find these extra facts? I'm scared because Joe is not here. Maybe it's because Joe is my son and he said he would come home at 10 o'clock and it's now 12 o'clock and I'm scared that maybe he's had an accident. Or, or maybe I've just had a death threat and the police have promised to send Joe to protect me during the night, but he's not here. Therefore, I'm scared. And so we've got to look for some extra facts in today's passage as well. Let's go back to verse 14 and 15 and notice that there is a quotation in verse 15. It's from Exodus 33 verse 19. He says, <clears throat> I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then to understand this explanation, we need to go back to Exodus 33. What happened there? Moses has just asked God to show him his glory. Let's read Exodus 33 verses 18 and 19. Moses said, please show me your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. So Moses wants to see something of the glory of God. And remember that the glory of God is his perfection, the perfection of his character, the, the perfection of his attributes, infinitely knowledgeable, infinitely merciful, infinitely just, infinitely powerful, and so on and so forth. And Moses wants God to demonstrate that in some way. How is he going to do it? God replied to Moses that he would do three things to demonstrate the perfection of his character and his attributes. He says, and all of these things are connected. The first thing, I will make my goodness pass before you. There will be, I suppose, some sort of visual representation of God's goodness. Isn't it significant that that is the essence of God's glory is the fact that he's good. And it's often the one thing that we doubt about God when we come to these difficult truths. I will make my goodness pass before you. The second thing that he will do, I will proclaim my name, the Lord. Now that name, the Lord, when you see that in capitals in the Old Testament, it's a translation of Yahweh. God, God's name was not pronounced by the, Hebrew, the Hebrews. They were just almost like breathing out. They would just say Yahweh. And then thirdly, he says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. Now, what do we learn from this? Well, we've already learned from the inference that God is completely free to act without any constraint from outside influences. The fact that he chooses one person over another has got nothing to do with man's desire. It's got nothing to do with our desire or the person's desire. It's, it's got nothing to do with their actions. But the new thing that we learn here is that his freedom is closely related to God's glory and name. In fact, 
God's name and glory include or they imply his freedom to make choices without being influenced by anyone or anything. How could God be infinitely glorious, infinitely knowledgeable, infinitely powerful if his choice was being dictated to by us or by some other influence? And this is confirmed in Exodus 3 verses 13 and 14. Let's have a look at it. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of our fathers has sent you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, Say to them, I am who I am. And that word Yahweh is a representation of that I am who I am. God's name is I am who I am. This represents his essence. Well, what is his essence? It's that he exists and that he decides who he is and he decides what he will be like. And a part of that, as a part of that, he decides who he will have mercy on and who he will not have mercy on. So the conclusion that we come to here is that God's name and glory includes his freedom to act without constraint from any outside influences. Now, how does God's glory relate to his righteousness? Because remember, that's where we want to end up. We've got to, we've got to make a connection between these things and his righteousness. Is there a connection? So we need to go back to earlier on in Romans. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Let's read it together. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Because God is just, he needs to punish unrighteousness. But, but what is the unrighteousness? Well, it's the fact that what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. How has he shown it to them? For his invisible attributes, things like his power and his divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. As a result of that, because they've seen the attributes of God in nature, and yet chosen to rebel against him, they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and, this is so important, exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. What we did is we, we, we looked at creation. We could see the wonder of creation. And the logical thing to say, in many ways, the only thing to say is, wow, this is so amazing. It must have been created from somebody, uh, by somebody. And that person, whoever he was, must have been incredible. Therefore, we should worship him. But instead, we look to things that have been created and look to those as a source of life. So what is Paul saying here? Let's just 
repeat it. Let's summarize it. When we look at creation, we see something of God's character and His attributes. In other words, we see something of His glory. But rather than honoring God, rather than giving thanks to Him, we decided to worship other things. In other words, we exchanged the glory of God for created things. And folks, this is the essence of what is unrighteous, of what is unjust, unjust. It's at the center of, of every injustice. But God did not tolerate this unrighteousness. He didn't untolerate, tolerate it. He, this attack on His glory. No, He acted to defend His glory by punishing unrighteousness. The, the wrath of God is being poured out on the unrighteousness. That's what it said. Which was the just thing to do. It was the righteous thing to do. So what do we conclude here? When God acts to defend His glory, He is acting righteously. This is how God's glory relates to His righteousness. So we've come to a conclusion here. Therefore, the righteousness of God includes His allegiance, His right to defend His own name and glory. So let's summarize what we've said so far. God's name and glory include His freedom to act, His freedom to choose, without any constraint from outside influences. The second conclusion that we found is that the righteousness of God includes His allegiance to His own name and to His glory. Therefore, when God chooses freely, He is showing allegiance to His name and His glory. He needs to be the one that chooses for His glory to be upheld. If someone else is choosing, then His glory is not upheld. When God chooses freely, He is showing allegiance to His name and glory. And since that is the righteous thing to do, He is not being unjust when He chooses freely. I hope this makes sense to you. You may need to go back and listen to it a few more times. But basically what Paul is arguing here is that God's choice is just simply because He was the one who made it. God's choice is just simply because He was the one who made it. Let's finish off by looking at two things that we've learned today and we need to give some perspective on each of these. The first thing is that since God is righteous and just, His choices must be righteous and just. The question is, do you, do you actually like that argument? Maybe you don't like it. I I, I'm a bit uncomfortable with it sometimes. I'm sure you will struggle with it as well. Since God is righteous and just, because He chose Jacob over Esau, then that choice must have been righteous and just. We don't really like that. You know, we want God to give us better reasons to justify His choices. And I'm sure He could. But if He did, folks, would we even have the capacity to understand? I mean, after all, He has infinite intelligence and knowledge. But we don't. There is a boundary to our intelligence and our knowledge. If He gave us a different explanation, would we even understand it? Here's another thought. 
Folks, we want to decide what is right and what is wrong, what is fair and what is unfair. But since God is God, he gets to define right and wrong. He gets to decide what is fair and unfair. Isn't that what he told us in the Bible? Isn't that what he told Adam and Eve? He said to Adam and Eve, you can eat from any tree in the garden, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you may not eat. In other words, I get to decide what is good and what is bad, what is right and what is wrong, what is fair and what is unfair. And now here's the thing, folks. When the, the Creator, when He makes choices regarding His creation, He gets it right. But what happens? What happens, folks, when mankind tries to define what is right and wrong? What happens when mankind tries to question God's choices, to rebel against what God defines as right and wrong? Folks, we commit the most heinous injustices. We need to allow God to be God. We need to trust that He is good and that He is just because He certainly has a much better record than we do. So we've learned that since God is righteous and just, His choices must be righteous and just. The other thing that we learn is that God's choice in election is ultimate. We, we, we learned about this last week. We're going to learn about it in the next episode. Verse 16, the inference that Paul draws here is that, so then it, in other words, election, depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. You know, God is completely free to act without constraint from any outside influences. His choice of one person over another has got nothing to do with what we want, and it has nothing to do with the effort or the record or the performance of the person who was chosen. Because if it did, then it would depend on them and not on God's choice. In other words, God's choices come first. They are ultimate. And we see this in the Bible. The fact that God's will is ultimate in choosing to save one and not another is actually backed up by other scriptures. Even Jesus taught this. Look at John chapter 10, verses 27 to 29. He says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Look at this. My Father who has given them to me. The fact that they are his sheep is because the God decided that they would be his sheep. And this God who chose is greater than everybody else, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. The fact that you can be sure that, that no one will ever snatch you out of the Father's hand is because God has chosen that you will be saved. Acts 13 verse 48. When the Gentiles heard this, when they heard what was being preached, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord. Listen to this. And all who were appointed for eternal life believed. Folks, this will probably stir up all sorts of questions. And you should discuss them in your life group. Does this mean, for example, I didn't make a real choice when I chose to believe in Jesus? Folks, the answer is no. You did make a real choice. 
but you did freely what he had already decided that you would do. Then another question that might come up is, what's the point of witnessing to non-believers and praying for their salvation? Well, folks, the fact that God has chosen a person to be saved doesn't mean that he won't use you as a means to bring that person, to call that person into his kingdom. And so God does work with us. He does partner with us. He has ordained it that we will work with him to bring those into the kingdom that he wants to be brought into the kingdom. And the thing is that we don't know who those people are. Only he knows. They don't have a big E etched onto their forehead. And so as God puts it on our heart to pray for unsaved family members, those prayers mean something. He, he may well use those prayers to bring that person into the kingdom. Folks, there are going to be a lot of bees swarming around in our head at this time. But the one thing I come back to is, wouldn't you rather that God is completely in charge of whether someone is saved or not? I wouldn't like to, have that, to make that decision. I don't feel that I'm big enough to make that decision. I'd much rather that God made that decision. And you know, if God is not in charge of who gets chosen to be saved, the implication then is that he is not in charge of everything. Folks, it's only the fact that he oversees everything that enables him to work all things for our good. Isn't that what we learned in Romans chapter 8? God works in all things for the good of those who love him. How do we know this? For those he has called, he justified, and so on and so forth. The basis of God working in all things for your good is the fact that he has called you, the fact that he is sovereign over all things. Thank you so much for spending time with us today. Let's just pray. Father God, as we continue to see how you revealed yourself in Scripture, help us to know you as you truly are. And Father, I pray that you would help every person who's feeling confused or perhaps humbled. <laughs> just work with us, Father, as we continue on this journey of discovering you and who you truly are and the implications of that for us. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.